Just turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. We'll be getting there momentarily. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll be getting there in just a second. That's kind of where we'll be camping out a little bit tonight and unpacking as we continue in this series. It's actually been a while uh, since we've uh, talked about this, uh, since we've been able to gather here on a Sunday evening and get into us, our series again, which is called Biblical Theology. Um, but we're back. And the aim of this study that we've been uh, trying to engage in is just showing how the Bible is a book with one overarching point. We've uh, spent, th- we spent three uh, three sessions, so to speak, three uh, three Sunday evenings talking about this in, by way of introduction, if you will, but also by way of just engaging with where this comes from. Uh, I, I will try not to re-preach all that. Um, I've already done that, but if you go to John chapter 5 or if you go to Luke chapter 24, which is where we spent the majority of our time recently, it's been very evident that Jesus has said everywhere that all of the scripture concerns him. Uh, and if that is true and we would believe that it is, since it comes from Jesus' own mouth, that we would have to say that the Bible has a specific point that it's trying to convey to you and to me, and that point is always going to be related back to Jesus. It's always going to be back to he's the he's the center, so to speak, of everything that the that the Bible is is meant to say or reveal or show to us. And that's what we've been stressing and striving to show. Uh, Again, just to say that despite being a collection of over 30,000 verses and nearly 1,200 chapters and 66 books, the Bible really only has one story. Uh, It only has one real narrative, one real point. And that one narrative point story, whatever you want to say there is, is the story of how God has chosen to reveal his glory most supremely through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what it all is concerned about. It, it either is gearing us to see that in the future, or it's, it's reminding us, especially from our perspective, how we can notice that in the past, which informs us in the present. And I think uh, more even to the point that not just um, that's what the whole Bible is about, but that's what biblical theology is all about too. That's what the whole sort of discipline of biblical theology is revolving around. As we've said before, just by way of review, so to speak, biblical theology is is a discipline of sort of gaining a bird's eye view of what the Bible says, what what its narrative is meant to say. So if you're if you're looking, it's it's being able to look from uh, from a very high vantage point of of what this book is meant to convey. You You can always see better when you're higher up. You can see the contours of the landscape. You can see uh, things in, in the far off distance and how they meet with things that are even up, up close to you. And the same idea with biblical theology. You're, you're gaining a bird's eye view of what the Bible is meant to reveal. Or, as we've said in another way, you're reading the Bible with an Emmaus perspective. Again, that brings us back to Luke 24, where Jesus reveals to those two mourning, sort of uh, very distraught disciples... That the whole Bible is concerned about him. And so if that's true, biblical theology is just the effort of keeping what Jesus says the Bible is about front and center. 
Whenever we're examining it, wherever we're interpreting it, wherever we're applying it. And if we get off into something else, then you can be sure that we're going to be, we're going to be getting off in everything else. And that's what biblical theology is aiming at, striving towards. And we've been emphasizing these, but also just by way of review and just carrying us forward. But I want to sort of stress even this evening is just the fact that biblical theology, this this notion, this discipline of, of making sure we keep the fact that Jesus is always the point, this is our, we could call it, we could, two sort of main things. Biblical theology is our, is our guard and our guide. That's what's going to guard us, but it's also going to guide us. And of course, by, uh, this is just assuming that you are engaging in your study of the scriptures in accordance with God's Holy Spirit. That's sort of step one. Without the Holy Spirit, it doesn't really matter how robust your biblical theology is or how robust your theology is at all. A, a rigorous biblical theology is only as strong as its dependence upon the Spirit of God. And in fact, that's what brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, where Paul is going to talk about this at length, I do believe. Look at verse 10, where Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians 2.10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Notice how many times he mentions the Holy Spirit in these verses. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. What a phrase that is. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You can see what Paul is Stressing here. The fact is, is that as Paul was in, engaging with this church, he is, he is not engaging uh, with them in any sort of wisdom or eloquence of his own, any sort of insight or, or aptitude that he had from himself. It was always uh, the truth that was revealed to him by God's Holy Spirit through God's word. That's what he was conveying. That's what he was pushing forth. That's what he was preaching and promoting. And then I think it's, it, it behooves us, so to speak, to, to, to look at this and, and apply it to ourselves in the, in the context of as we are, are reading the word, God's inspired word, this Bible that we hold in front of us, it is only as we do so in accordance with the Holy Spirit that we are able to discern or examine what God's Holy Scripture is meant to reveal. That's what gives us understanding. Again, notice verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned, deciphered, understood. Trusting in or relying on our own ability to understand the scriptures is a shortcut to ruin. If you strive to just do this in your own might, in your own ability, of your own accord, you're going to keep running up against a wall. It's going to be like running into a brick wall over and over again. 
Because again, what, what Paul is saying, that these words that have been breathed out by God's Holy Spirit and preserved for us are given to us so that we, in accordance with the Spirit, might understand what God has always meant to reveal. And if we try and do that on our own, we're going to be ruined. And not only we, but uh, others as well. That's the key point. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, that this is, this is what makes the study of theology so, so freighted and so important, is the fact that it's not just uh, you're putting yourself on the fast track to failure, but you're also bringing others along with you. Theology is always something that is meant to be sort of a, a, a cooperative endeavor with others who are disciples of God with you. And if you're veering off, you're veering others off, and then soon everyone is in the ditch. I'm reminded of what Paul even says at the beginning of this chapter, where he even says and makes it explicit that he didn't come to, he tells the Corinthians, I didn't come to you with my own wisdom, with my own eloquence, with anything of my own accord. Rather, as he says in the beginning couple verses, I was just a conduit for God's power speaking through me, through God's Holy Spirit. Notice verse 1 of the same chapter. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in, de- in the demonstration of the spirit and power of, in the demonstration of, of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He didn't come trying to impress them with all of this theological acumen that he had accumulated through years of study. And the point is, he could have. Paul was a student under one of the most well-educated schools of the day. And in fact, you could rightly think of Paul as like a Harvard grad in the sense that he had all of the accolades, he had all of the education, he had all of the ability to make arguments that were so well-founded, no one would be able to put a dent into them. The point is, he says to them, none of that really matters. What would it matter if I'm speaking circles around you, trying to make a specific argument? That doesn't do anyone any good. My point, Paul says, when I came to you was to just let the Spirit of God speak through me as a demonstration of what? The truth of God and the power of God. Because again, if you, if you, if you go back to verse 14, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking, as he, I like how he uses that same word. The things of the Spirit of God are what? They're folly. Which brings us back to verse number 2. He's talking about the cross, which brings us back even further to chapter 1, where he talks about the foolishness of the cross. See, the, the natural man can't understand what we would accept as victorious, as what we would accept as the triumph of our faith. We've talked about this before, but here Paul is alluding to it once more. That the gospel proclamation at the center of the Bible, if you will, is this scene of the cross. Which to all onlookers should look like utter folly and defeat. 
And it, and it should, it, actually the word folly is almost like, it, it should come across as just the worst sort of joke possible. That when you look at that cross, we're supposed to be glorying in that? And Paul says, yes. Why? Because he believes and testifies, not just because it's out of his own imagination, but because he believes and he believes the testimony of God's Holy Spirit revealed through God's word that not that cross wasn't just the defeat of Jesus, but it was also his deliverance in disguise of defeat. Because we know that Jesus died taking our sins with him, but then he rose from the grave, and Paul was a witness to that resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. So you understand here that Paul, yes, from the outside, that sounds like folly. A guy dying on a cross, and that's what your hope is in? But in the Spirit, what? We understand. We understand that that folly is precisely the hope of those who are perishing. He says that. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is what was speaking through him. This is what he was demonstrating to the Corinthians. He was a conduit for the power of God, a channel that all of that, we could call it the foolish wisdom of God. It looks like foolishness, but it's not. It's actually, as he says later on in that same chapter, um, verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That the, the foolishness of the cross was actually perfect wisdom. The wisdom whereby God's only Son took away sin and offered life to those who were perishing. So you see Paul is here coming to them and saying, my biblical theology, if you will, was nothing but preaching Christ crucified. And how did he get to that point? Because he read the word and understood it by the Spirit. And here he's standing as a vessel of God's Holy Spirit speaking through him the power of God that allows sinners, dead uh, sinners caught in dead in trespasses and sins to be brought out of their deadness and raised to newness of life. And he's speaking that once more to them. And he's saying, that's what I was all about when I came to you. And I would say by the same token, that that same power that Paul was trusting in, that same reliance that Paul was trusting in on God's Holy Spirit is the same sort of power and reliance that ought to guard us and guide us when we are reading the rest of Scripture as well. And this, I think, is what he's aiming to get these Corinthians to see. Notice verse 6. He says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed from, the, from before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So Paul is here saying, yes, we're, we are imparting wisdom, but it's not our own. 
There is a wisdom and knowledge that we can attain out of God's holy word that you can glean whenever someone's teaching from God's holy word, but it's not a wisdom of the teacher. It's not a wisdom from me. It's a wisdom that comes from God's spirit and God's word. See, God's Holy Spirit takes God's Holy Word and brings it into our hearts and souls and minds and applies it to us, guiding us into all truth and guarding us from all falsehood. I've talked about this before, but God's Holy Spirit is a way better applicator of His Word than I am. Infinitely so. I should should never try and wrestle how God is trying to apply any message that I teach uh, uh, away, uh, away, uh, away from you. As you, uh, hopefully, prayerfully, are listening in faith to any sermon being preached, the Holy Spirit is going to bring that message into your heart and soul and apply it to exactly what you need. Maybe it's something that I don't even know about. And good thing, because the Holy Spirit knows. <laughs> You have a God who is omniscient. That means he is all-knowing. And all the things that you don't think that anyone else knows, he knows. So sometimes I would even say, not to get myself off the hook, but if I'm preaching and it sounds like I'm preaching just to you, you got to take that up with God. Because <laughs> it's not intentional. Because God's applying it in a way that even I can't know. And here he's saying that wisdom, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our ability. It doesn't come from our intellect. It doesn't come from uh, because we're so well-educated and we're so smart. No, it comes because we've just stuck to our guns. We are imparting a wisdom, but it's not from us. It's from God, from before the, the foundations of the world. He has implanted this beautiful wisdom of grace that his son would come down in flesh and die for those who rebelled against the Father. It, 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 it is something that is so unfathomable. You see, it is only though as we trust in this grace of the Holy Spirit and cling to what the Word reveals that we will be guarded and guided into all truth. And again, this brings us back to what the Holy Spirit's job is. We've talked about this on a couple of occasions, but I think it's so crucial for we who are engaging in a study on biblical theology, for understanding what the Bible says. What is the Holy Spirit's job? What's the the function and ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's really only one thing. The function and ministry of the Spirit of God, for those who believe is nothing more or less than bringing to remembrance the work of the Son of God. Go with me to John chapter 16. We've read these verses, but you know them perhaps, but they are so crucial for us to keep in mind. Notice what Jesus says. Again, these last couple chapters of John are so fascinating. It's Jesus' last sort of discourse and dialogue with his apostles before he's crucified and ascends back into heaven. Notice what he says. John 16, verse 13. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you, notice that word, into all the truth. For he will not speak of it on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father is, has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He is declaring the Son. And the Son is who? The Son is the embodiment of the Father. That's why you see in a couple of these other chapters, chapter 14 and 15 and even this one, you'll see Jesus refer to the fact that the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father, but it's also the Holy Spirit is sent from Him Himself. How can He say that? That's confusing. It's because He's God in the flesh. It's not confusing. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the living God who comes, yes, both from the Father and from the Son, and He imparts to us a wisdom, again, Not speaking his own authority, but he's speaking the truth about the Son of God to those who believe in the Son of God's work. Notice chapter 14. Go back a couple pages. Look at verse 15. John 14, 15. If you love me, he will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, same word for spirit, to be with you forever, paraclete, even the spirit of the truth, whom the word cannot whom the world, excuse me, cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jump down to verse twenty five. These things I have spoken to you, while I am still with you. But the helper, the comforter, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jump with me, 15, chapter 15, look at verse 26. Chapter 15, 26. But when the helper, same word, comforter comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit of God does not testify about anything other than the work and the word of the Son of God. That's what he has been sent to do. And that's why I think it's, it, you can see this play out in the lives of the apostles. We've addressed this again. You have these apostles who are bumbling and kind of confused. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't really understand what that means. Then he dies and he resurrects. And then what do you see them preaching about? Jesus is the Christ. Where did that come from? Because they were just so smart, they finally put it together. No, he tells them the Spirit is going to lead you and guide you into all truth. At Pentecost, remember, we always get so caught up at Pentecost over the fact that they're speaking in tongues. You know what was happening at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit is breaking out and pouring out onto all who believe indiscriminately. At that very moment, no longer is the Holy Spirit confined to little place in the tabernacle or the temple. You can think of the Holy Spirit is accessible Upon belief. And now all who believe are guided into all truth. All who believe are able to see and understand. Are able to perceive the wisdom of God that was there from before the foundations of the world. 
So therefore, if the word of God has a point, and that point is always Jesus, if the spirit of God has been sent so that we can see that point, and that point is always Jesus, therefore we can conclude if we are reading and studying the word of God under the influence of the spirit of God, and we are coming away with something other than Christ, we are very likely out of whack, off base, in how we're reading the word of God. It's kind of that simple. If you're going to the Word and you're coming away with something else, something's off. And it's not God's Spirit and it's not God's Word. It's probably you. You're straying away from the point. And I would say that this is what allows us to recognize when the Word of God is being misinterpreted. That's That's what allows us to understand when someone is up there preaching... You should be able to have like this radar going off and they're like, oh man, that, ooh, that doesn't sound right. How can you know that? The Spirit of God and the Word of God right in front of you. It's like, it's like, um, it's like you're working in a bank. We've, we've, we've used this illustration before. You probably know where I'm going with this. Counterfeit currency. How do you identify counterfeit currency? By looking at the real stuff. You don't spend a lot of time trying to examine the differences because counterfeits are very, very good. <laughs> They're very well done. But how do you understand that the counterfeit money is sitting on your desk? Because you've handled the real stuff so much that you can spot it instantly. Any bank teller will, will tell you that they are always trained in handling the real stuff way more than seeing what the fake stuff is like. The same thing when it comes to how we should be developing, yes, our, our biblical theological sense. How do we do that? By spending more time in the word of God under the influence of the spirit of God. And the more familiar we are with that, the more faithful we are with that, in the discipline of that, the more we'll be able to pinpoint when someone is going off the rails, when someone is preaching so far off their rocker. It's sort of of a pet peeve of mine when... This is something that I'm trying hard to like turn off when I'm sitting under preaching and I'm not preaching. I'm just sitting there and I'm, I'm listening. I'm trying not to be a critic. That's so bad. I, I'm revealing probably something I shouldn't reveal, but sometimes it's like I'm just, man, I would have made that point or whatever. Just listen to this guy preach. I should be able to just saturate myself in that. But then there's other times where I'm like, whoa, he's, he's going off. He's... He's straying from what God's word says and he's getting on a soapbox or he's getting on some sort of thing. And I would say in some way, you you can do it with me, that's fine. Um, In some way, I would hope that you would be able to distinguish good preaching from bad preaching. I would hope that that would be something that you're able to identify. If I were to put two uh, uh, sermon clips up here, one from a known heretic and another one from a really good faithful guy, I would hope you would be able to spot the difference. And not just because the one guy has smokes and smoke and lights or whatever. But you would be able to hear it just by, I, I should do that, just audio. And you, you, you should be able to understand what the difference is. Because we, again, we, uh, what I've talked about before and I think is so true, just because there's a person behind a lectern doesn't mean you should take every single word that they're conveying as the absolute truth no matter what. Check it against the word in front of you. 
You have the Holy Spirit of God in you just as much as the preacher does. And you can check it, check what he's saying against the word of God. By the way, you have the whole same Holy Spirit that was in Paul. That was in John and James and all the others. The same Holy Spirit is guiding you into all truth as well. Which is just to say, whenever anyone is preaching, whenever anyone is speaking God's word, always check it against the word. That's what it means, I would say, to be a disciple. Uh, We are not supposed to just be listeners and consumers. We are called to be, yes, listeners, but also discerners. That's what I think it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A, A fruit of bad biblical theology is no discernment. You're not being able to uh, understand or discern when the preacher's going off or when he's conveying something that's wrong or when you read the word and you've been influenced by some other voice and now you're, now you're getting off. Now you're being swerved. Now you're on the road to shipwrecking your faith. And I would say that I think a lot of modern churchgoers, especially in America, we are prone to treating our weekly church attendance like our nightly Netflix experience, where we just flip on a screen or we come to church and we find something to stream and watch and then we just turn our brain off and we binge. (laughs) I'm not saying that binging is bad. Sometimes it's good. It can be very therapeutic just to turn something on and turn your brain off. That's nice. Do that every once in a while. Except when you come to church. That's not good. (laughs) Because soon, just like, you know what I'm talking about. If you've binged a show before, you know what I'm talking about. And soon all of those words, they don't really affect you. It's just, oh man, we're in season five now. How did this person get to that? You don't even know what has happened. All of the words in the episodes, they start to sort of blend together and they don't have any effect on you. It's just like in the background. It's like background noise. And I think too many churches are filled with people who are almost essentially doing the same thing if they don't even know it. They're just sitting and vegging and consuming And they're not discerning. They're just listening. Oh yeah, okay. And then they leave. It's just like binging a show. Nothing has affected you. Nothing has moved you. You haven't discerned anything. Churches are filled with, I think, too many undiscerning pew-sitters. And I think, again, I think it's because they have not been shown the importance of good biblical theology. How to understand wherever the the pastor is preaching from, what's the main point? What is this trying to convey? What should I be able to glean from this? So therefore, when they sit under sermons or they see sermons and and that are filled with a lot of counterfeit theology, they're not equipped to identify it. They're not ready for it. They have no guide and they have no guard to spot when they're being duped. They just consumed. And again, this is not how God has intended it. This is not how God, I think, has designed it at all. We are all disciples of the living God. And he has equipped each of us to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4 says that. That he has equipped evangelists and pastors and teachers to build the church up so that they are equipped to do the work of the ministry. God's not interested in consumers but disciples. And I would say that the the chief discipline of disciples of Christ is understanding what the Bible says. And we do that through the Spirit of God. 
The Spirit is what guards us, what guides us into all truth. Again, so that we avoid all the pitfalls. I'm sure you we could, sometimes I I I I think I should play all the bad stuff because it, it it would maybe give us a laugh. And it may show you what's out there. Maybe you've seen there's all kinds of bad theology out there. It's rampant. People making excuses for homosexuality or transgenderism in the church and in Christianity. And they're going to the Bible for it. I even saw a person who was using that scene in John chapter 11. Remember John chapter 11 and Jesus says to Lazarus, who is dead by the way, come out. They were using that as a person coming out of the closet of their homosexuality, so to speak. That's just really bad theology. And of course, that's one of those ones that should be like, oh yeah, really apparent. But the, the fact is, it's not always the case in every place. And where does that come from? Where do you get to that point where you're looking at Lazarus come forth as sort of a sign for other homosexuals to come out of the closet? It starts with really bad biblical theology and what the Bible is meant to convey and what it's meant to show. As I've said before, the Bible is not about you. It's not about you and your life experience. It's not about you finding a little nugget. The Bible is about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself, is indwelling in you by faith so that you see that no matter where you are in the Bible. And I know I keep talking about it, and we're going we're gonna to do that eventually. We're going to go to some of the hard spots and actually do it so you can see what it looks like. Because this is not just a soapbox of mine. I truly believe and I would truly say that God's word is all about Jesus no matter where you are in it. And it's all meant to guide you into that. And I would say that by this same standard, we're able to guide and guard others as well. Your, your uh, sort of responsible in your faith, is, is your responsibility in your faith also affects others and theirs. See, this is one of the things that I think we've, we've gotten wrong, that, that my relationship with God is just about me. It's just my personal relationship with Jesus. And it is, yes, I, I pray that you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's not just meant to be personal. We are the community of faith. We are family, the family of God. And yeah, we are all different ages, but we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And our faith is meant to be communal in that way. We are a community. Me encouraging you, you encouraging me, we encouraging each other. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who who rejoice, as Paul says later in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's all because we have the same spirit and we are reading the same word. That's what keeps us together. Last little passage, and then we'll close. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Notice, I want you to see this, just because I think Peter, it's good to see, I think, Paul talk about this to the Corinthians. But then Peter says basically the same thing. Which is just to emphasize the way that the church was formed and founded. Second Peter chapter number 1. Peter's 
reflecting specifically on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he's using it as sort of a segue to talk about the scriptures themselves. Notice what he, what he says. Look at 1 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Again, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. He's using that as a very specific point. We were there. And again, what is he trying to emphasize? We didn't make this up. We, this didn't come out of our heads. If you remember, it was one of the early sort of ways that the resurrection was explained is that the apostles stole this and then you know, they just made up this story. They just, they just made up a story about Jesus rising from the dead. Which, did you see that video from this past Easter that was put out by the Babylon Bee? I should share it again. It's so funny. Because they dismantle that notion where, you know, the, all, the, all the apostles are there. Let's just steal his body and make up a story. And the one person in the group is like, what do we get out of it? <laughs> and then they're like, we get to get murdered and executed. <laughs> yeah, well, why would they do that? They wouldn't do that. We didn't, we didn't make this up, Peter is saying. We were there. I was right there. I heard the voice. I saw Jesus in his glory. It was not cleverly devised myths. Again, then what does he say? Verse 19. And we, notice this, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. How can he say that? Because of the Holy Spirit. Watch. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See what he's saying? We have taken the word by faith. And yes, we the same, but we have the holy, again, he's saying we have the prophetic word of God more fully confirmed, he says. It's even more true for you and I now. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is freely accessible to all who believe. And he's the one guiding you into all truth so that you are able to say as Peter, this is true. That Jesus is God's son. This is where all their preaching came from. It didn't come from their own imagination. It didn't come from their own sort of invention. They weren't making any of this up. They were making known only that which the Holy Spirit of God declared for them. So I hope you see just how important this discipline of biblical theology is, not only for you, but for everyone within the church. You can think about it like this. If my biblical theology is not faithful and filled with the Spirit, then I'm likely to lead you astray. But by the same token, if your biblical theology is not faithful and filled with the Spirit, then you won't know the difference. 
And then you can, then that's where you get churches going into way far off distant places away from the word of God. It started with a couple of people deciding that they would believe something other than what God's word says and reveals about who God is, about who God's son is, and what he has come to do. Why do we see preachers preaching nonsense with barely any outcry from their congregation? Because the church, by and large, is desperate for faithful, spirit-filled, biblical theologians and discerners. That's what I'm, I pray for you, specifically. I pray for this church. I pray for all churches. That we're able to not just consume, but to discern by God's Holy Spirit what God's Holy Word is meant to convey. And it's always the Son of God that always brings us back to Christ. All of these things concern Him. So may as, as, we, as we read, as we study, as we engage with the Word, may we never veer off from what the Word is concerned about. And may we trust in God's Holy Spirit to guard and to guide us into all truth. Let us pray.